guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Coach Christian Thibodeau of Tib Army. Christian was previously on the podcast way back in episode 62. On this episode, Christian and I discussed many topics, including what's new with Christian. Christian speaks about the factors of strength development and some of his favorite methods to develop strength. Christian gets into a really detailed discussion about looking at the neurotransmitter dominance of his athletes and how he uses this to determine their training needs. Christian also speaks about how he manages his own training and nutrition as he travels the world for all of his seminars. Guys, this was an awesome episode with Christian, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Christian Thibodeau, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come back onto my podcast. Uh, it's been a while since we last spoke. Just maybe for the listeners, give us a, a brief update on, on what's been going on in the world of uh, Coach Thibodeau um, over the last year or two. Uh, well, yeah, first of all, uh, it, it's really cool to be back. We always had good interactions in the past, both in the uh, when we met in person and also during previous podcasts, but it's always a treat to be able to talk to you. Uh, as far as what's going on in my life, well, it, it, lots of traveling, man. It's, it's just been crazy with the seminar tours. Uh, been all around the world. We've been to Australia, to the UK, of course, France. Uh, we're also in the Caribbean. Now we're going to be planning on uh, going to uh, Asia, Poland, US, of course. I mean, over 20 dates uh, going to be covered this year, so it's been a crazy, uh, crazy year uh, to be uh, to be honest. And uh, right now, I'm taking about two months off from seminars, uh, I'm, and I'm preparing for a photo shoot for my website. So my, uh, you'll have to excuse my total lack of uh, intellect today because my brain is functioning on minimal capacities with the low carbs and and two training a day. So it's going to be. Uh, pretty rough ride, but once adrenaline gets started, uh, we're going to be able to cover some cool material. Great stuff. Yeah, and, uh, I, uh, I don't envy you with uh, with your current diet and training regime, but uh, I'm sure when your photo shoot comes around, you'll be happy you put the effort in as always. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, those who know me, it, it's funny because uh, I was talking to a, an online client yesterday about, uh, you know, when people look at people they see on the internet, like, fitness quote-unquote celebrities or stuff like that and it's all they're always in shape and that guy must like eat a perfect diet all the time dude you have no idea how much crap i eat a normal situation i mean my training is always pretty well because i'm passionate about training but i'm a former olympic weightlifter with a 42 inch waist so uh if i'm not preparing for something specific like a photo shoot or something uh, let's just say that my eating is less than stellar so uh, I'm actually really happy about the photo shoot because it gives me a, a, a reason to get things started. And once I'm in like that mode, I'm really good. I, I almost never cheat. I'm pretty solid with my diet, but I really need to have a goal to work toward uh, to stick with my diet. And I think that most people listening to that podcast can relate to that. Uh, and, and just let me assure you that it is a constant battle, even for us who are uh, like advance in this field, we always have like one Achilles heel. For some, it's training, uh, either training ADD or, or just they being inconsistent with training. Uh, sometimes it's diet, sometimes it's alcohol. We all have 
one Achilles heel holding us back. For me, it's sugary treats. So it's uh, it's been a tough ride, but but I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm zoned in, so it's going pretty well, except for the brain fog, of course. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So uh, Christian, um, last time we met in person was back in October 2015. Um, you did a second seminar in in Dublin. Uh, you did you did one previously in May 2014, but the one in October 2015 was 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 so it was excellent. You know where you covered. Uh, everything and anything to do with strength, power, and hypertrophy, and how to optimize each one of those qualities. Yep. So this kind of podcast, I'd like to center around um, your training methods, and even if you want to get deeper into the principles and kind of philosophies behind these methods, as to how you optimize strength, power, and hypertrophy. And uh, I, I have it down here to start on strength because it was the format in the seminar. We did power, we did strength, we did power, and then we did hypertrophy on day two. So. But, I mean, it's, it's up to you, whatever you want to tackle first. Then. Well, you, you just, just get the ball started rolling, and you know how it is. We're just going to yeah. – just two guys talking training, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if we if we maybe start with strength, uh, from that seminar, you, you kind of kicked it off, and you spoke about the factors that influence strength, things like neural factors, neural inhibition, the ability to get into certain positions, fiber typing. I think you even touched a little bit on the stress shortening cycle. Uh, you know, obviously, genetics is a factor, and – I know often when you read some of the strength uh, textbooks, they'll talk about the modifiable versus non-modifiable factors. And hypertrophy obviously is a huge factor in strength too to have a more cross-sectional area. But maybe just get get into these factors and then maybe get into some of the methods then around how to optimize strength development. Well, I think it's really important to understand that, that uh, as you mentioned, strength can be increased several different ways. Mm. Uh, and of course, increasing muscle mass being one of them. I believe that... Uh, we can group these ways of getting stronger uh, in, in three broad categories. And I'm talking about the modifiable ones. Uh, we won't necessarily cover like fiber typing and uh, penation angle or uh, length of tendon, stuff like that. Things that you can't really modify uh, unless like through surgical procedures. So the thing that can be modified through training, you really have uh, three main categories. The first one is, of course... Uh, the structural elements, meaning increasing either the size uh, of the muscle tissue, the contractile part of the muscle tissue, and also thickening the tendons. Uh, the thicker the tendons, the, the more your body will allow you to use the potential strength of your muscles because the body feels protected. I mean, it, it, there's one thing, and, and you probably remember this, I always say that in every single one of my seminars, regardless of the topic, is that your body hates you. But, but it also really likes you, meaning that it doesn't care that you have the biggest bench press in the gym, doesn't care you have the biggest squat in the gym, or you have the bigger, biggest chest in the gym. All it cares about is surviving another day. And in the interest of survival, if your body is under a load that it perceives as being excessive for its own safety, it will just shut down force production, preventing you from being able to use your full potential. So that's why we hear these like incredible feats of strength when people are in a situation where they have a sudden surge of adrenaline and they argue, well, it's the adrenaline. Well, of course it's the adrenaline, but the adrenaline did not make you grow more muscle all of a sudden. It simply like shut down these protective mechanisms. But I'm going to get back to that later. But, but for now, understand that one of the main factors you can have an influence on is either making the muscle tissue itself bigger or making the tendons thicker and more resilient. So that, that is the structural 
portion uh, of increasing strength. The second portion is making the nervous system more efficient at utilizing the strength potential you have. Basically, see it this way, the size of a muscle uh, and the tendon, if the tendon, the tendon are uh, strengthened to the same level as the muscle, because you can have very big muscles, but if your tendons are not up to par, you won't be able to make full use of the strength of those muscles for the reason I just mentioned. So, so but provided that uh, your tendons and muscle are well developed, then your potential for strength is much higher. The, the image I like to use is that your muscle and tendon structure is like a factory. Uh, the bigger the muscle, the bigger factory, the more employees you have. So in theory, that bigger factory with more employees uh, can produce more on a daily basis, so produce more strength. But if all these employees are lazy, if they don't work well, if they don't work together, then you won't be able to reach or function at your full potential. And what makes you capable of utilizing that potential are the neural factors, either your capacity to recruit muscle fibers, uh, to make those fibers twitch at a higher rate, because people, uh, they always talk about, well, I want to increase fiber recruitment. Well, increasing fiber recruitment is fairly simple. Anything over 80% or done with maximum speed, you're recruiting pretty much all your recruitable fibers. Uh, at one point, it's more a matter of developing the capacity to make those recruited fibers twitch at the highest rate possible. That's what separates people who are strong and people who are super strong. So these right off the bat are two neurological elements. Of course, you also have the capacity to better synchronize those recruited fibers together. So it's like uh, recruiting more fibers. It's like having more employees at your factory do the job. Increasing firing rate, it's making each of those employees work harder by themselves. And improving intramuscular coordination is making all those employees that are now working hard, working together toward a specific goal. Uh, so these are the main factors that make a single muscle stronger. You can use your potential to the fullest. And then, of course, you have the, uh, the intramuscular coordination where you can better coordinate several muscles at the same time. So that would be like I have two or three different factories working toward a sp building a specific product or let's say I'm building a car. Well, one part of the factory works on the frame, one part works on the engine. Then intermuscular coordination means that all of these different parts of the factory will work better together to build a car faster and more efficiently. So basically the neural factors are not related to increasing how much muscle you have. It's how well can you use your full potential? How much strength can you produce with the potential you have? So that's the second element that, that, you, that is uh, modifiable to training. And, and the third one, I briefly mentioned it in the past, is the inhibition of your protective mechanisms. Mm. As I mentioned, your body hates you, but it, it really likes you. It doesn't want you to injure yourself. It, let's say that your muscles can produce 100 units of force, but your body feels that producing 70%, 70 units of force is dangerous for its structural integrity. Then it will not allow you to use 100% unit of force because that would be perceived as dangerous. But the thing is that these protective mechanisms 
are super conservative. Uh, like in, in, in the average person, they can probably use about 20 to 30 percent of their muscle strength potential. Yeah. A pretty well-trained athlete can use about 60 percent. And when we're talking world class, with them 80 or 90 percent, sometimes yeah. even more. Uh, so that's another way uh, of increasing strength, just gradually over time inhibiting uh, those protective mechanisms so that the body will allow you to use more of your potential strength without getting injured. Uh, now, the thing is that we have training methods for all of these three categories. Uh, the problem lies in people trying to use methods that target something they are not yet ready to accomplish. I mean, to me, working on inhibiting uh, those protective mechanisms is stupid if you don't yet have the muscle mass and tendon uh, resiliency to handle the load, and if you're not yet neurally efficient. So, so the, the order I presented those three factors are really a spectrum or a step-by-step -step process. At first, when you're trying to build strength, let's say in a beginner athlete or a young athlete, don't work on the nervous system. Uh, well, you can work on the on nervous system when it comes to like learning new movement pattern, but not as far as really doing everything possible to increase rate of force development or increasing rate coding or, or increasing fiber recruitment. When you are younger or you're working with a beginner who doesn't yet have muscle mass or very low level of muscle mass, the goal should be to increase the size of his factory. I see way too many strength coaches wanting to train kids like elite athletes train. They right off the bat use methods targeting mostly on quote-unquote functional stuff in, in maximizing the nervous system while minimizing muscular development. To me, it's a step-by-step -step process. You need to build the muscle first. You need to build the tendon first. Because otherwise, even if you have a very efficient nervous system, your potential is still low. The nervous system efficiency only allows you to use a greater percentage of your potential. If your potential is low because your muscle mass is inexistent, then your potential for improvement is fairly low. And don't talk to me about using methods to desensitize the Golgi tendon organs or the, the, the protective mechanisms until you're neurally efficient and your tendons are resilient and you are used to handling big weights because uh, inhibiting those protective mechanisms mean using load above 100% of your maximum, either through partial reps to very heavy negatives uh, or to movement like overloading with change, overloading with bands. Methods like that are, are built mostly to desensitize the protective mechanisms. But if your technique is not good, if your tendons are not resilient, if you don't have the muscle mass, if you don't have the neurological efficiency, then you will get injured and it, anyway, it, it won't be efficient. Anyway, with, with younger athletes, just the fact that they are training will in fact inhibit their protective mechanisms to some extent. So it's really a matter of, yes, you have all these methods, but it, it is a step-by-step -step process. Do not uh, try to teach uh, a, a grade school student to do a dissertation on the sociological impact of the work of Shakespeare uh, on North America, for example. That just won't, that just won't work. There's a step-by-step -step process. You can't train young athletes like you're training college athletes or pro athletes. Yeah, that's some really that's good stuff. And 
just uh, some additional questions that I had off that. Just with regards to pination angle and fiber type, I, I know you kind of said there that they're not really that modifiable, but some resources would say they, they, they are modifiable but, to a certain degree. Yeah, they, they are modifiable. For example, if you increase the size of a muscle, mm. the pination angle will change to some regard, which is uh, another... That, that's actually the argument for, at one point, excessive hypertrophy yeah. could actually lead to a decrease in force production yeah. and certainly in speed. Yeah, yeah. Because as the muscle grows, certain muscles, not all the muscles, I would say that, for example, uh, biceps would be affected. Anyway, when you change, when you really over-hypertrophy those muscles, that pination angle actually makes it harder to produce speed. So you do need enough muscle mass to have a large potential for force production, but not so much that it makes force production mechanically harder. So there's a difference between having more of a bodybuilding type physique and a muscular athletic body. So I think that the difference is really important to mention, and it's a good point that you brought up. Mm -hmm. um, the... the, the Neural inhibition aspect is is something that I've thought about a lot. I, I really find it fascinating. You know, when we talk about you know the Gage tendon organs and the spindles, and one thing that comes into my head is you see on the internet guys doing like really high box jumps where yep. where they you know where they end in that deep squat position, and most coaches would say, oh, that's a waste of time. They're not really jumping that high. They're just tucking their legs. But then I see it as, yeah, but the adrenaline inhibition of that is, there could be something to that in helping to dampen that neural inhibition. Would, do you think, totally, man. Uh, yeah. Totally. No, just continue, sorry. Yeah, no, no, that, 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 that would be my question. So that, that would be a sort of a devil's advocate I would, I would respond back to. Because you see coaches nowadays, and they're just getting their athletes to jump on these really low boxes, and they're just saying, it doesn't matter about the box height, because you're basically just jumping the same height. Now, in terms of, how far their center of mass is moving, okay, that's correct. But then from the chemistry that's gone inside their body in terms of an adrenaline release and maybe the ability then to override these neural factors, you're getting a completely different training adaptation. Yes. Yeah, and that's a very good point, internal versus external. Uh, there, there, are, there are arguments, there are pros and cons for using super high uh, boxes. I think that from for certain people, from a psychological standpoint, Overcoming an obstacle that is intimidating can actually have a very uh, positive, strong effect uh, on the nervous system and even on the hormonal system. But it depends on that person's neurological profile. Mm. I'm, I'm going to give you an example, uh, and that is actually the, my um, my current series of seminars on. Uh, how the neurological profile, the brain biochemistry should affect how someone trains uh, and even someone, uh, how somebody eats. Uh, now, you have basically five different neurotypes, but, but three broad categories. And each of these three broad categories have their like one dominant neurotransmitter because they have an increase, either an increased sensitivity to that neurotransmitter, so they respond more strongly to it, so it affects their behavior, affects their motivation, affects how their body functions, uh, or simply the level of the neurotransmitter affects their state of mind. 
Uh, I'm going to be an example. The, the, the type 1, either the type 1A, which would be your sprinter, uh, your jumper, your Olympic weightlifter, that would be a type 1A, super intense personality, risk taker, uh, all or nothing kind of guy. People who would be normally described as lazy when they're not training. They like to take long rest between sets. It seems to take them forever to get started, but they are physical machine. Many coaches would describe these athletes as, as such. Well, if that guy really trained hard, he'd be a freak. Well, he is training hard, but that's just how his body function. Now, these people are, are the one A or the two, the one Bs who are more um, strongman competitors, uh, decathletes, uh, CrossFit competitors, people who are very high intensity but can tolerate a bit more volume. Uh, and But the, both of these two types are driven by winning, by overcoming. And that's because their dominant neurotransmitter, the one they are the most sensitive to, is dopamine. Every time they win, every time they overcome something that looks unachievable, uh, every time they, they experience like a very strong rush, a danger, a risk, it spikes their dopamine, makes them feel good, increases tremendously their motivation, makes them a lot more confident, decreases their stress response. So for these guys, the super high box jump can actually be a training tool to make them more motivated to train. It would actually enhance probably the whole week of training. Uh, for them, it would be just like getting a 1RM on a squat or a bench. And getting a 1RM on a lift is also debatable, whereas it's is it useful or not for an athlete. But for some people, it is because they thrive on winning. I, am, I won that workout. I beat that exercise. I beat a record. So some people thrive on it. Uh, the second type, uh, which, which, I, uh, which I am, the type 2, uh, to A and to B are both driven by adrenaline. Their dominant neurotransmitter is adrenaline. That means they are very, very, very responsive, very sensitive to adrenaline. Now, these people, when adrenaline is low, they have a very low level of self-confidence. I mean, you've seen me in person. I'm a totally different human being when I present a seminar and before or after the seminar. Yes. Or if you see me on the road. I'm very introverted. I'm even shy. Even my English is worse when I'm just talking to you like down the street or something. But once I start giving a seminar or this podcast, I morph into something completely different. That's because as soon as I have an adrenaline increase, I'm so sensitive to it that it makes me an alpha male. Under rest situation, I'm more of a beta. I, you wouldn't see me in a crowd. Well, you would see me because I'm totally awesome, but, but I would never take my place. I mean, I will always be in a corner. I would never participate in discussions, never seek out other people. But as soon as I have adrenaline flowing, I'm a completely different animal. So for these people, any form of exercise that would amp up adrenaline would increase the efficiency of the whole workout. Just because the more adrenaline they produce, the more confident they feel, the stronger they are. So for these people, it's also a tool that might be useful. Now, you have a third type, uh, which is uh, driven mostly by uh, their uh, low level of serotonin. So their, their, their dominant neurotransmitter is serotonin. They are more naturally anxious. So they, they are naturally more uh, excited. The nervous system is always 
like on guard because it, it feels that it, it's threatened at all times. They have a very high eye self-preservation uh, natural capacities. They are very well organized. They are people who are great at following plans, never going off script, for example. They would do great in endurance activities because nothing unexpected happens. And they can just get into the zone and just keep going and going and going and going. Uh, but these people, when they have an excessively high or even a small increase in adrenaline, they don't respond well to it because they are already over-anxious. You know the inverted U uh, curve when it comes to activation. I mean, being uh, Activation is too low, you don't perform. Activation level is perfect, you, per you perform well. But if you are overexcited, then you don't perform. So these people, that would happen. If you have them do exercises that would jack up their adrenaline or create anxiety, they already have too much anxiety, which leads to an excessive stress response, which leads to an increase in cortisol level, a decrease in training effect. So for these people, you would actually want to reduce adrenaline production, and you, otherwise they will have a negative impact. Now, the, the type 1, right, 1A, the sprinters, the 1B, the strongman, CrossFit, football players, these guys uh, are neuro-driven. The most important thing for them is to have that nervous system crackling to feel satisfied about their workout. The type 2 are muscle-driven. So they, they need to feel that either feeling a strong mind-muscle connection or having a lot of difference muscular experience. So that means different methods in a session. I'm a type 2, 2B to be exact. And not surprisingly, as you know, I'm more of a method guy. I like to use many, many different training methods, but few exercises. That's because my natural tendency is to seek out many different muscle experiences. Now, the type 3, they are structure-driven. So for them, the most, what makes them feel good is to feel in control, feel precise, feel that their structural integrity is not threatened. So knowing the deep motivation and how someone responds to training teaches you which method to use. So for example, the extra high box jump would work amazingly well for the type one. I need to win. I need to beat a PR. These guys, oftentimes, they don't use the best form, but they perform well and they feel good about it. Uh, these are like the pro athletes, the high-level physical power machine you see are mostly that type. So that's why you see those videos of them jumping super high on those high box jumps because for them, it actually works. Uh, for the type 2, it's more about, uh, I would use regular height box jump because they do need to feel that adrenaline. So they need a box that's high enough to feel like it's a challenge, but not so high that, that it actually uh, represents a threat because since they're muscle-driven, they do need to feel in control. They do need to feel competent in an exercise. They do need to feel that they are technically correct. Whereas a type 3, they are structure-driven. I would go with a lower box, focusing mostly on perfecting mechanics. So it's all a matter of how you are approaching each type of athlete. And in regards to like more information around that, Christian, is there any peer-reviewed research or literature, or is there like for say for any listeners that want to look more deeply into this? Uh, well, well, you can always come to my seminar. Uh, but, uh, I'm actually working on a book like that. But the work I use, of course, 
that work was uh, pioneered at first by Charles Polykin. Okay. Uh, Charles Polykin himself used the Braverman assessment and the work of Eric Braverman when it comes to psychological assessment to determine the, the neurological profile. I personally, uh, I do use the Braverman assessment. I think it's a decent tool, but I, I teach how to use it properly in my seminars. But I, I, I rely mostly on the work by Dr. Cloninger, C-L-O-N-I-N-I-N-G-E-R, Cloninger. Uh, he's one of the leading psychiatrists, was one of the leading psychiatrists in the U.S. regarding uh, either behavioral modification, but especially uh, how to overcome addiction. And he studied uh, a person's psychological profile in connection with actually measuring neurotransmitter levels. Uh, that allowed him to know, okay, if that person is of that type of personality, these are the neurotransmitters that are dominant, and that's how we overcome addiction, or these are the drugs he's more likely to become addicted to. Now, from that material, and once you understand how each neurotransmitter functions in the brain, it allows us, or allow, allow me for when it comes to the building that system, uh, to build or a table of which training methods can be used with what kind of athletes. So for example, during my seminars, I go over 12 different training variables, mm -hmm. volume, frequency, uh, intensity, variation, training methods, training strategies, speaking, all that kind of stuff uh, for every single profile based on his neurological dominance. So how to adapt training that way. And I, I've been working with like, what, maybe like a hundred online clients using that system and they all freak out how precise it is. I mean, it's like, I'm, they always comment on, it's like you're reading my mind when I have like that, the, the initial conversation because they always fill out the test, then I have the conversation because the test itself is not enough because some people will have personal bias when they, they, they write the test or they will answer uh, to make themselves look good. So we have to talk to that person, get to know the athlete. But really, I think that uh, as coaches, uh, it's something that we instinctively know when we have worked with lots of athletes. We know that this type of personality responds better to that type of training or even coaching style. I mean, if you have a type one, a type one is super competitive, like the sprinter. Uh, they, they want to win at everything. Uh, and they have normally a, a big ego, but not necessarily like in a bad way. Uh, so these people respond really well to being challenged or, or uh, like there's no way you can make that squat. Or you, you want to jump that high? I'm pretty sure you're going to fall in your face. These people respond amazingly well to that. But if you say the same thing to a type three, or anxious, they need to feel in control, need to feel confident, then that they will actually crumble when you coach them that way. So some people need to be coached in more of a motivational way. Some people need to be coached in a more technical way. Take a type one, typical sprinter or a very high competitive personality. If you overcoach them, if you give them too many technical cues, they will actually lose interest and it will kill their motivation. A type three, on the other hand, if you do not coach them very precisely technique-wise, it will increase their self-doubt, increase anxiety, decrease training motivation, and they will get worse results. So that's just an example of, it's not just a matter of how you plan training, but it's how you interact with athletes. I mean, I made many mistakes in the past 
when I started coaching. For example, the the first two type of athletes I worked with when I was starting out were hockey players and figure skaters. Uh, well, it's a long story, but still. so uh, my hockey players tend to be a type one B or two A. So they are people who respond well to be being teased, being challenged, all that stuff. So I would always like uh, be on their back and make like make them comment. Uh, there's no way you can lift that. You're looking, you're looking, you're lifting like a girl today, whatnot. And they would respond. They would man up to the challenge and improve their performance. Now, one of my figure skater, uh, she was she was a national junior champion. And uh, by the way, sorry, I want to. I said my skater. That I I just wrote a post that you should never say that a, a skater I worked with. Um, she was a national junior champion. And that was her first year as a senior, and she was favored for a podium. But she had the worst performance like in her lifetime and fell like three times. When I watch her performance, I actually cried because I was really um, I got a close relationship with all my athletes. But the next week when we're training, so okay, today we're going to work on, on core strength because it's good for stability. And some people here fall a bit too often during their solos. So she started crying. It took me about three months to be, able, to be able to have her talk to me again in about six months to rebuild some kind of trust. So, and I know what I know now, I, I would have acted differently, but the answer is you can't coach every athlete the same way. Most people know that instinctively, but knowing how each personality responds to type of coaching can be really helpful when you're, when you're working with uh, many different type of athletes. When you're working with athletes from only one sport, it's normally fairly easy because they tend to have a fairly similar profile, mm. uh, except for team sports where you have different position and different mindset. But uh, when you work with athletes from many, many different sports, you really have to understand quickly uh, how each athlete will respond to with uh, your type of coaching. So just to summarize the, the types, we've got we have type one which were our sprinter types, and then follow well, yeah, up. Yeah, you, you have the type 1, and the type 1 would be domin uh, dopamine dominant. Dopamine Among dominant. the type 1, you have the 1A, which have a very low work capacity, but the highest potential for intensity. And the type 1B, which also can handle high intensity, but can also tolerate volume because they have higher acetylcholine. Uh, that, that's like a 12-hour seminar, so it's kind of hard to explain exactly yeah, all the profile. Yeah. But the 1A... Typical sprinters, right? Lazier, high intensity, low tolerance for volume, super explosive. They tend to be forgetful. They will be late for appointments. They lose their keys. Uh, their mind wander. Uh, the type 1B, they have high acetylcholine. So they can, they're good at multitasking. They actually need to have many different types of stimulation in the workout. Otherwise, they get bored. They need variation often. Otherwise, they get bored but they still need intensity. That's a type one. The type two uh, is adrenaline dominant. So they, they are super sensitive to adrenaline. Now the type two A have high GABA. So they tolerate anxiety a bit more. These, these are the people who are super social. People will go in crowd and talk to everybody and they are natural people pleaser. These are the guys who will never get into a personal conflict one-on-one. -on -one. They will always agree with the person they're talking to. They will always get along fine. They, they want everybody to like them. 
Uh, they make great teammates. When I'm building, if I'm building a team, I want many of these guys because they, they make the, the locker room really stable and a good place to be in. The type 2Bs are also dependent on adrenaline, meaning that as long as adrenaline is low, they have a low level of self-esteem, low self-confidence. But as adrenaline increases, they feel better and they feel more confident. But these guys have low GABA, so they have more anxiety. And because of that, they have a harder time being social. When they are very comfortable with someone, they are the best friends you can have. They will do anything for you, but it's very hard for them to make new social contacts or to approach people. So that's my case. And the type 3, the type 3 is dependent on, on serotonin. So they have a much higher anxiety level. They are more introverted. Uh, they are super structured. Uh, they're great at following plans. They don't like new things. So these are the guys who, will, who can stick on the same program for 12, 16, 20 weeks without any problems. They can use the same exercise over and over again, and that's fine for them. And they can do a lot of volume, but they can't use as much frequency because they overproduce cortisol, for example. So that's a broad stroke kind of thing. When I present, it's just what I just said is normally three hours of seminar. So it's it's it's, it's kind of hard to resume precisely. But that's yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I was just scribbling notes there really fast. But it, yeah. in terms then of... I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you my presentation by email so you can look it over. Oh, that would be fantastic. I'd absolutely love that. Um, in terms of then uh, assessing someone's personality, is that, does, that, does that come in form of a questionnaire or do you feel you need to speak to them in person or through a Skype call? No, I, I do. The way I do it is I, I have a questionnaire that I send to them, uh, which is a modified Cloninger questionnaire. I also, uh, I'm just completing my own because both the Braverman, which I used in the past, and the Cloninger models both have... Uh, uh, they're both incomplete. Like the, 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 the Braverman is really good, but it doesn't uh, measure or differentiate between dopamine and adrenaline because dopamine and adrenaline are very closely related. The Braverman doesn't differentiate both, but it's very important for the three personality profiles I use. Uh, and the, the Cloninger model does not account for uh, GABA and acetylcholine, which are uh, uh, accounted for in the Braverman. Uh, but uh, so I, I use the modified cloning, but the one I'm the one I just did, which will be available on my website eventually for free, of course, uh, measure all neurotransmitter based on question. But then the problem is that most people, when it comes to questionnaires, even when they try to be totally honest, there's always a personal bias. Either people answer subconsciously the way they think you want to hear, uh, or they answer the the way they think they are, and that's important because. There's a difference between nature and nurture or between your nature and your learned behavior. Uh, so you, you can have like a certain brain chemistry, but through years of conditioning, you learn to act or behave a different way. So you might answer not based on your instincts, but based on what you learn to do. And that might give a false reading. So that's why it's important to actually talk to the person. So when I do that online coaching, it's always the answer to the questionnaire. I, I, I correct the questionnaire first, so I have a broad idea of what I'm working with. Then I have a one hour to one hour and a half Skype conversation uh, just to get to know the person, to either confirm or infirm the initial diagnostic, uh, and then ask other questions to, uh, to make it more precise. Uh, and I normally after an hour, an hour and a half, I have a very good 
uh, understanding of that person. Sometimes it's it's freaky. I mean, people are now. One guy actually I told him. I said, "Well, don't take this the wrong way, but were you ever in your life addicted to ecstasy?" And he freaked out. I said, "Dude, I was so into that shit for many years. How did you know?" It's because your profile means that you are super sensitive to it. So you obviously, if you had experience with it, you probably were addicted at some point. So it's it's it, it, it's only a tool, of course, but human contact is more important than the actual test. So it's really, really fascinating stuff. And maybe just finally finishing up on that, have you correlated any somatotypes to each personality? Because I, I know the somatotype actually originally came from psychological profiling too, from Sheldon's work. So like, do, do you see like maybe that the type 1 sprinter are more the mesomorphs and maybe the type 3s yeah. are more your ectomorphs? Yeah, or? yeah totally, totally. Uh, and uh, I really believe that, of course, you will have discrepancies i mean it's never uh, like a hundred percent accurate but i really believe that the mesomorph tend to fall more into the type one category the endomorph would fall more in the two category and the ectomorph would fall three in the three category which is totally in my opinion it it is very accurate again maybe not hundred percent maybe eighty percent because there will always be some differences uh but that seems to be fairly accurate I also believe that there, and, and I want to, to conduct a study with a friend of mine who's a, who's a researcher at the university here uh, about uh, neurological profile and muscle fiber type. Uh, I believe that there's also uh, maybe even a stronger correlation between uh, fast twitch distribution and slow twitch distribution and psychological profile, which would make sense when you think about it, because if you're neurologically built for strength and speed, then it, it goes without saying that you likely have the, the, the body to go with it. Because if your brain is built to do something, that you better have the engine to do it also. Otherwise, you just won't be optimally functional. But, I, I, yeah, I believe there's a, a pretty good relationship there. But, of course, it's a spectrum. So, for example, yeah. you can – and people often ask me, can I change my profile? Well, you can, but not that much. I mean – a type 1 will never be a type 3 unless he has a severe depression or accident that just crashes serotonin. Uh, but you can have modification. For example, when I was younger, I was a type 2A. Type 2A are really into explosive lifting. Uh, they are more confident. They are good with people, good with teams. So that was me. And, and for some reason, I evolved toward a 2B. I think it's because of either health issue I had, or uh, it, it is more prevalent when I'm dieting. It's funny because when I'm when I'm not dieting and my carbohydrates are higher, uh, I naturally include a lot more variation in my training. I will use more methods, more exercises, change my training around much more often. When I'm dieting down, I always do the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, that is likely because that actually either decreases my serotonin. Well, I, I, in fact, it is what's happening. It decreases my serotonin, which increases anxiety, which makes me look for these stable elements uh, to hold on to. And it makes me less confident because of the anxiety. So I gravitate more toward a 2B. So you can have these modifications that way. Or you can have, as I mentioned, the difference between nature and nurture. Best example to, uh, to give an idea. Let's take the militaries, right? People get into the military for probably three reasons. The first reason would be they're looking for excitement. I mean, we all seen war movies. I'm going to be shooting guns. 
I'm going to jump out of an airplane. I'm going to go to war. I'm going to uh, go camping in the woods. It's going to be so cool, man. So these people who are get, getting into the military for that reason tend to be the type one, those who are looking for excitement, right? Uh, people can also get into military because well, I, they need structure, they need hierarchy, they don't want to, they just want to follow orders, they want to be in a structure that makes them feel secure and safe. So the type three personality might be attracted to the military for that reason. The third reason would be to make money. Uh, so the thing is, if the reality of the military, unless you are like in a special unit, it's more of a type three kind of thing. It's more of a structure, follow order, hierarchy, always doing the same routine, always doing the same thing. So if you get into the militaries and your personality is a type one, I'm a risk taker, I need variation, I need to compete, I need to be my own man, I need to make my own decisions, then when you get in the military, you're going to be really unhappy. So either you leave, they kick you out, or, or they break you, and you actually uh, fit into the mold now, and through years of being in the military, you actually learn to follow order, you learn to be structured, you learn to live your life according to a routine. But that is not your nature. Once these guys get out of the military, what happens? And they are not in that forced mold, forced structure anymore. They have this strong internal conflict between their true nature, risk taker, I want to be my own person, I don't want, I don't want to play by the rules, and their learned behavior that's been drilled into them, follow orders, follow structure, follow routine. And that strong internal conflict creates such a stressful uh, inner stress response that this is what leads to depression or even suicide. When you, and that's why you have that such a high rate of suicide and depression in, in former military. And many of the of these guys have never seen fire. They've never been to Afghanistan, yet they have depression, severe depression. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder. They've never been in combat. Uh, it's because of that strong internal conflict between their true nature and what they force to become. So that's why the guys you see having a depression when they come out of the military are those you would never suspect being depressive because these are the guys who have uh, always having fun, always fun to be around. They were always competitive. Those who were more introverted, normally they, they do great in the military and there's no internal conflict. So we're always surprised when it's the winner, the guy who does all those sports that gets depressed or even kill himself when he gets out of the military. It's because of that strong internal conflict. So things like this can happen at a smaller scale when you force yourself to behave against your nature. I'm not saying that if you have impulses to kill everybody, well, kill everybody, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you should not force yourself to be something you're not. You should find a way to act that goes, uh, behave according to your nature while respecting uh, other people in society. But the farther, the more you force yourself to go against your nature, the more of that internal conflict you create. And I think that a lot of people who have depression or a lot of people who are unhappy in their life, it's because of that internal conflict of trying to be someone that they are not. People do not change. People can evolve a bit, like what I mentioned, like slight differences in behavior. But really what happens is simply that you get to know your trigger, you get to know uh, what ticks you off, and you are capable of recognizing 
uh, your emotion and, and modifying your behavior to make it more socially acceptable. So on the uh, in the eyes of other people, you are indeed changing. But the initial emotional response you're feeling to a situation is still the same. I'm going to give you a personal example. Uh, I'm a really messed up individual, by the way. So it's something that people need to understand. Um, it's, it's all right. I, I'm in the same club too, Christian. So you're okay. <laughs> I think that most of, most of us are, really. Uh, you know, I, it's, I'm not a jealous person. I mean, I, I, I don't get jealous. But for some reason, let's say that my wife uh, comes home after work and says, I'm going to go have uh, an evening with my girlfriends. Well, it's just three girls going to a restaurant. I mean, what's wrong with that, right? But my initial reaction is deep internal frustration. It pisses me off. It makes me feel horrible, horrible. And I never understood why because I'm not a jealous person. So in the past, I would actually act up on that initial emotion by actually making her feel guilty for leaving me alone at home. The real reason I understood later is that my personality type, the 2B, also called the, 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 in Chinese medicine, it's called the, the Chinese elements, it's called the earth profile. They need to feel at the center of things. So when she goes with her friends and leave me alone, I feel left out. I'm not the center anymore. It creates a deep perturbation. Now, in the past, as I mentioned, I, I would act in a way to make her feel bad for leaving me here so that she would not, quote unquote, enjoy herself. Now, nowadays, when it happens, it still pisses me off. I still have that initial emotional reaction, but I'm capable of it's a trigger. It's because you need to be the center of attention. So I'm capable of modifying my behavior and she has a good evening. But, but my personality did not change. I'm just capable of leaving things alone, leaving things be. I mean, at one point you need to worry only about what's really important. And there are really, really few things that are really important in your life. The less you worry about the small details, uh, the more happy you're going to be, in my opinion. So once you get to know your trigger, once you get to know who you are, how you are, that, then you can actually uh, be more functional in real life or be a better person. But deep down inside, your personality is still the same. Yeah, it's just fascinating stuff. Uh, and again, it was funny because at the start of this uh, interview, we we kind of, you know, I would say we get into these topics, and you were like, "We'll just, we're, we're just two guys talking," and, and just, it, yeah. and we're like, "We'll probably go in a different direction." We were like, "It's all good," because this, this information is is absolutely uh, mind blowing. It's, it's so fascinating. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Pat Davidson, but he uh, currently is doing a lot of uh, reading and research in the area of neurotransmitters and sort of strength profiling too. So I'd say it'd be good for you guys maybe to hook up and have a conversation because he's an yeah, he's an extremely intelligent guy when it comes to training. He uh, he used to be a professor at Springfield College, and he yeah. has a, a PhD. Like, and I'm not too sure if his PhD is exercise physiology or exercise science, but he used to be a professor anyway at, at Springfield College, and uh, he used to work at Peak Performance New York, Joe Joe Dowdell's yeah. old gym. But he's a really really top guy. Um, very highly respected by the peers. No, I'll definitely talk to him if, if possible. I'll reach out to him anyway because really that's one thing that if – it's funny because I always ask my clients uh, what is your best quality and what is your greatest weakness. Well, my best quality is I have absolute – and people, 
they don't get that when they, they, they look at my online persona, but I actually have zero ego. I mean, I have no ego whatsoever. I don't need to feel like I'm the man or like I created everything. I just want to know the truth. Yeah. I want to learn the truth and apply it to myself, my clients, and teach it to as many people as possible. So I'm always, like for example, uh, when I gave that seminar in the UK, uh, there was um, uh, one guy there that uh, that did not challenge me, uh, but uh, like asked me good question. I actually didn't know the answer, but now we're actually working toward creating a seminar together. So it, it, it always leads up to good things when you have an open mind and you have no ego. Every time I've given that seminar, I actually had to rebuild the material completely. Wow. Uh, because uh, people ask questions, people make comments, and that makes me think. So uh, what, what Jake did, Jake Fennigan Carter, who's uh, the guy I'm going to give the seminar with, uh, like really made me think through other aspects of that profiling thing that I did not think about. So I'm always looking forward to uh, learning for really other really smart people. Yeah, I mean, well, that's 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 the road to mastery. So it is to be able to be humble enough to be open up to to that sort of feedback and that constructive criticism. And, well, I, and also knowing yourself. Mm. I mean, if there's one message that people should uh, should learn here is you should know yourself like personally uh, i'm not what i would call necessarily the the smartest innovator now i'm not like a louis simmons who invented a system from scratch and made something amazing out of it uh, i'm not like uh chris duffin who reinvented how you train for powerlifting uh, i'm not like these guys uh, my greatest strength is communicating in a way that other people can make connections yeah. and understand things that they did not previously understand. So the more I learn, the better I can help other people make connection. I think that is my role uh, as a teacher. It's not necessarily to, to invent new stuff, but it's making people make these connections between different elements to enhance their own training, their own ways of doing things. I don't want anybody to adapt, uh, adopt the Christian Thibodeau way of training. First of all, there is no such thing as a Thibodeau system. Right? It doesn't exist. Uh, that's not who I am. I, I want people to take the information I I'm giving and so that they can make connections with what they already are doing and then enhancing their own way of doing things. Taking the information I'm giving them and just making it their own, using it their own way, they select the way they see fit. And the only way they can do that is if they make the connections with what they already are doing. Because it's all related. It's all related. There's no such thing as a nervous system, muscle, tendon. It's the human body. It all works together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, couldn't agree with you more. And just on your point about you not having an ego, I actually can remember distinctly at, at the, that seminar in Dublin in, in 2015 somebody asked you a question on nutrition and someone else asked you a question on mobility and you were like to be honest that's guys yeah you're like that's not my area of expertise my area of expertise is strength power and hypertrophy and I, I'm like I can remember looking at my friend beside me we kind of made a face like I like this guy he's very he's like he's honest he didn't he didn't stand up there and like you know give a bullshit answer because he might have been insecure because he didn't know something because I'd like to think that Again, I, I'd be pretty similar because when I used to teach at a personal training college, I always used to say to the students, uh, 
you'll probably hear me say more often than not, I, I actually don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, always, I always used to say, uh, I know enough to know that I, that I know very little. Yeah, and that's really mature. And I think, a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't have the self-confidence to say. Oh. Easily available. So if you give a bullshit answer, people will find out. And that just one bullshit answer can actually destroy your reputation almost forever. You could have like the greatest body of work in the history of training, but that one answer might actually ruin everything and takes away your credibility. So to me, right, and that's the one thing, the one thing that I, I change on myself is do not try to be the smart ass. I, I used to be the guy because I have low level of self-confidence naturally. Uh, I always was afraid of saying that I didn't know something. I always, and I'm pretty good with words, so I was comfortable and was pretty good at making people believe that I knew everything. But that's the one thing I changed like uh, about six or seven years ago when I, once I, I, I got to be more confident. And that's a sign of maturity, signs of confidence, and a sign of intelligence, knowing that you don't know everything. Yeah, I'm telling you, if you meet someone, a coach, for example, who as an answer for everything, run away. Yeah. I mean, normally it's never a good sign. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Christian, uh, I, uh, well, we won't spend too much longer because uh, I, I have to go myself here, but and we might we might just rebook in and, and because there's so much more we can talk about. But just uh, maybe if we if we can get into maybe some of the, the strength methods and maybe if we get that in and call it a day, uh, I know it, at that seminar, you know, you broke it down into your favorite methods in terms of isometric, eccentric, and concentric yeah. methods. And I, I believe on your YouTube channel, you have videos showing some of these, but with your isometric methods, you, you spoke about like max overcoming, uh, the pulse overcoming method, some functional isometric, uh, max yielding, duration yielding. You even spoke about um, uh, EQIs, eccentric, uh, quasi isometrics, and some isodynamics. Uh, why these particular methods have you played around with more? Um, and yeah. are these things that, you know, is, is there certain things there that you've kind of innovated yourself or have you gotten from other, other resources? Or What I can say is, and it's funny because I was uh, talking to a, a trainer, a coach, a performance coach at the gym uh, this week, and isometrics are likely my favorite tools yeah, out yeah. of all training methods yeah. because they can help pretty much everything if you use them properly. Uh, in that particular situation, he, he asked me about uh, one of his athletes or the athletes he was working with uh, that couldn't feel his glutes firing when doing split squats. Uh, it was really quad dominant. So what I told him is, well, simply like on each rep, hold the bottom position for about three to five seconds. And during that isometric hold, really focus on squeezing or creating tension in that glute. And do not do your rep until you feel that glute firing. So that's one cool tool with isometrics. It's probably the best way to reprogram your motor pattern or your, your muscle recruitment pattern. 
because during that isometric hold, since you don't have to think about moving up or down or having perfect technique, you can simply focus on creating tension in the right muscle. And creating tension will basically tell your nervous system, well, this is the muscle I want to use. So when someone has a problem uh, activating or contracting a certain muscle during an exercise, isometrics, well, isodynamics really, like including brief isometric holds during a set in key position and then doing grabs is one of my favorite approach. Uh, like if you have someone, like let, let's talk bodybuilding, he, he can't feel his biceps when curling. Yeah. Well, just hold the, the 90 degree position on the starting barbell, standing barbell curl, focusing on flexing the bicep as hard as possible for 20 seconds, then do 10 reps. Uh, you will definitely feel your biceps and that will build the mind-muscle connection necessary to fix the weakness. Because when you have a lagging muscle group, the first step, is improving your capacity to contract that muscle. Most often than not, right? The fact that one muscle is lagging is because you suck at contracting it. And isometrics are the best way, it's the best way to learn to contract a muscle. And then when you combine isometrics with movement, you learn to take that tension you created and you translate it into a movement using that muscle. So, so that's for fixing weak points or for hypertrophy purposes or for changing motor patterns. Uh, you can also use isometrics for strength. Uh, I really like functional isometrics for that, for, that, for that purpose. Functional isometrics combine a very short range of motion, maybe like two inches, and isometrics. So you are in the power rack. The bar is resting on a set of safety pin, and then there's a second set of safety pin about two inches higher. You load the bar up and you lift it up from the first pin until it touches the second and then you push as hard as possible for six to nine seconds. So to me, that is one of the best way, if not the best way to strengthen a weak point in the range of motion. So you would do that around your weak point in a lift. It's also the safest way to desensitize your protective mechanisms. Because you, are, you can use a weight over 100% of your maximum. And even if you don't, the fact that you are pressing as hard as possible against the pin, you are, in fact, creating maximum tension, desensitizing those Golgi tendon organs. And since the, the range of motion is so short, it's very safe. It's much safer than uh, like doing partial range of motion movements with super heavy weights uh, or very heavy centrics, for example. So for fixing a weak point, that's great. Uh, you can also use uh, overcoming isometrics for strength. Overcoming isometrics uses an empty bar and the safety pins in the power rack. So you put the safety pin around your weak point and then you pull or push against the pin as hard as you can again for six to nine seconds. You don't want to go out of the phosphagen energy system. Otherwise, it's too draining on the nervous system. So six to nine seconds is about it. And you can either work on a weak point, just working around that weak point, just either before or just above, because there's a, about a 15 degrees carryover anyway. Or you can use that overcoming isometrics to strengthen the whole lift. So in that case, you would use two or three different positions all throughout the range of motion. So that would be the best isometrics for strength. If you want to build size uh, or, uh, or either even correcting movement pattern or strengthening positions, I would use with yielding isometrics. So for example, if you want to build 
core rigidity and also the, the capacity to root your feet and create tension in a squatting position, then you could use a fairly heavy weight or moderate, like 60-70%, go down into a half squat position and hold that position for about 20 to 30 seconds, focusing on creating maximum tension, trying to externally rotate your feet to, to, to contract your glutes, squeeze your abdominals as if you're going to get punched in the stomach, squeeze the life out of the, bar, out of the bar with your hands, and try to bring your elbows to your ribs so that every single muscle in your body will be maximally tense, which is what you want when squatting. But if you don't have that capacity to create rigidity and you, you try to do it while lifting weights, it's really hard to do because you're focusing on on lifting the weight, doing the movement, and the more weight you have, the more you go back to natural instinct, which is to use rebound, shifting of position, nothing stable. So by using that isometrics, you can focus solely on creating tension in a key position of the lift. So for correcting a rigidity problem, it's really it's really effective. And if you want to build muscle, same thing. You could use the mid-range position of a curl for 30, 45 seconds. It's going to build lots of lactic acid, which will create a release of local growth factor, which will create hypertrophy. So really, regardless of your, your goal, isometrics are really effective. And even if you want to strengthen the whole range of motion, I mean, uh, let's talk strength, for example. Uh, when, when you're pushing big weights, or even when you're trying to build power, we're thought to try to explode the weight up, try to push it as hard as you can because it's, it's easier to lift big weights that way. But what happens is that you can actually create momentum when you start to lift the weight. The stronger you are at the bottom position, let's say in the squat, and you even take the rebound while you're creating momentum. So the body actually has to produce less force to finish the lift because it's relying on momentum. Now, if you are including isometric pauses, during the concentric portion of the movement, you are killing that momentum, so you have to produce more contractile force uh, during the whole range of motion. So you could squat, go halfway up, pause for three seconds, then stand up completely. That will allow you to get stronger over the full range of motion in, because you're not relying on momentum. So really, when you understand uh, what isometrics can do for you, then you can find many, many different ways to use them regardless of your objective. Like personally right now, because of my photo shoot, I'm training mostly for hypertrophy. So uh, I only have like one all-out work set per exercise. So I'm going to have like two warm-ups, gradually heavier, sometimes three depending on the lift. And, and I do my work set to failure. And when I eat failure or, or technical failure, I will hold the weight at the point of maximum tension for the longest I can. So that continue creating fatigue in the muscle fibers. It also increases the release of local growth factor, which increases the anabolic response. So isometrics are so powerful if you know how to use them. Yes, yeah, great. Yeah, it's funny you say that because it's been something I've been really considering and thinking a lot about lately because uh, well, I was in Arizona um, last November through February, so I was there for three months. I, I, I was uh, interning at Altus, and while I was there, I had the pleasure to meet um, Jay Schroeder for, for an hour meeting. And, oh, yeah, he, he's, he's the man when yeah. it comes to isometrics. So it, it was just, you know, obviously uh, with free training and, and Jay Schroeder and, 
you know, obviously some people know Jay Schroeder and then the DB Hammer sort of stuff, and a, yeah. a lot of their methods incorporated these, uh, incorporate a lot of isometrics and the idea again of kind of decreasing neural ambition. So I, I definitely think it's something that's really underutilized. And one thing I actually took away from Altus from Stu McMillan was uh, he incorporates a lot of like reflective eccentric work and like yeah. kind of a lot of uh, pulsing isometrics. Similar to and like pulsing eccentric type work, or, or they're, they're, I suppose they're more isometrics, like pulse isometrics, similar to what Cal Diaz has put in triphasic. But and, uh, uh, Joel Seedman also uses Joel Seedman also uses uh, what he calls rapid eccentric isometrics. So yeah, basically, yeah. let's say this is in a squat, and you would actually try to accelerate down, then abruptly come to a stop and hold for about three or four seconds. Yeah. That that translates really well to athletics. So it's kind of the same thing. But what what what, what kind of Stu made me realize, and even like talking to Jay and stuff, was that we're so biased towards concentric motions. Oh yeah, man. Because I, I I think against because like we, we like when we're young males in the gym, it was always about like getting stronger and who can lift the most weight, but. Then we realize, you know, that we're we're so biased towards the concentric contraction, and we don't utilize the eccentric or isometrics, or even look into them as much. Um, I believe that, and that is probably of all this like interview that is the smartest thing that has been said so far, or the most <laughs> important. I think that uh, I, I work with athletes from twenty eight different sports, and it's totally. A, problem they lack isometric and eccentric strength people don't realize that both the eccentric and isometric have a different muscle recruitment pattern yeah. than concentric yeah. just because you're strong concentrically does not make you strong isometrically and eccentrically and in in athletics the capacity to absorb and stop force is actually more important than overcoming it. Yeah. Because every sporting action is preceded by an absorption of force. Yeah. If I'm sprinting, I have to absorb my body. If I'm weak, eccentrically, the absorption phase is longer, which, of course, makes me, me, me slower. If my isometric strength is weaker, the trends, the... the, the uh, the, the shift from eccentric to concentric is slower. So in both cases, it's a different reason, but the result is the same. You get slower. Uh, same thing when you're changing direction. Same thing when you have to block alignment. You have to tackle someone. You have to hit a baseball. The stronger you are eccentrically and isometrically, the stronger concentrically you can be. You can be super strong concentrically in a gym. If you lack eccentric strength and isometric strength, you cannot display it optimally on the field. Not only that, being weaker eccentrically, well, you will always be stronger eccentrically, but you know what I'm saying. Like, if you're not strong enough eccentrically for your concentric strength, your risk of injuries increases. The stronger you are eccentrically, the less likely you are to have musculoskeletal injuries. Uh, so that's really important. I mean, I'm going to just uh, tell a little bit about an experience I had. Uh, about five years, five or six years ago, I, I was doing a phase that lasted about two months where all my big compound movements were done from pins. Uh, so all my bench press were done with the barbell starting in the bottom from pins. It started about one inch from my chest, so pretty much full range of motion. Uh, I was able to work up to uh, 190 kilos from a dead position without the benefit of the stretch reflex. So I figured, well, with the stretch reflex... I'll be able to do at least 200. So when I tested my bench press, I failed at 160. 
Why? Because my eccentric and isometric were so inefficient that I lost a lot of energy lowering the bar, but mostly I could not reverse the movement efficiently. Instead of using the potential energy built up during the eccentric and the, trans the, tra the transition phase, the energy actually dissipated and I had an inhibitory response uh, which prevented me from pressing heavy weight. So that goes to show that if you don't train the eccentric, if you don't train the isometric, they will not get stronger. You can actually be detrained. That is the number one problem with CrossFit athletes. Think about it. Every single CrossFit movement is basically devoid of eccentric. Uh, when they do the Olympic lift, they either drop the barbell on the floor on a trip or they just drop it down on their thighs when they're doing lifts from the, from the hang. They never control the weight down. When they're doing kipping pull-ups or even worse, butterfly pull-ups, not only are they not producing tension during the eccentric, they're actually speeding their way down. Look at what happened at the CrossFit regionals this year. 22 people tore their pectorals because on the ring dips, they, they did not control the weight on the way down. They actually tried to accelerate down to be able to rebound up and go faster on the ring dips. 22-ton petrols. 22. Uh, that's because they don't have the centric strength and isometric strength to absorb force when you rapidly have to go from rapid eccentric to rapid concentric. So, so in my opinion, the number one reason for injuries in CrossFit, except for bad form, when it is a lack of eccentric and isometric strength. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, couldn't agree more. So I couldn't with all that. Just you were saying there, your your training, Christian, because of the photo shoot come up is has been mainly obviously um, trying to optimize hypertrophy. You brought out a book with Paul Carter there at the end of last year, maximum uh, the maximum muscle bible. Muscle bible. Uh, the Maximum Muscle Bible. Uh, so how did that book come about and, and why did you feel there was a need to, to put it out there with Paul? That's a good question. I mean, really, <laughs> the way it happened is that we, we just, like, we were sharing information. We Paul and I, like, were talking on Skype and uh, we were just sharing tips and, and our, uh, like, approaches to training and we found that we have many commonalities. Uh, so we said, well, well want to try, like, writing a book. So it just didn't start at, like, like something serious, but you he would write a chapter. He would send it to me. I would get pissed off. So I would send him a chapter and I would send him another one and he would get pissed off and he would write one and send it to me. So it became like a competition between who could write the most chapters. So that, that's pretty much how it started. Really. It's, 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 it was pretty organic. It was not like, let's write a book and make money. It's, it just happened that way. You just, uh, we just were talking training and want to, want to write a book. So it's, yeah, sure. But, I wish I would have like more cool stories about that, but uh, really that's exactly how it happened. No, but in terms then of, of what was covered in the book, uh, like what did you guys sort of? Because uh, I actually I haven't had a chance to to, to, to get the book and read it yet. Because when it came out at the time too, I was just I was away and I, I didn't I just I didn't see. Well, it's basically the well the, the material I cover is basically the training methods I, I use for. Hypertrophy, even for functional hypertrophy, so either yeah. the best uh, sets and rep schemes, the best training methods, but also explain why they work. Yeah. Uh, why can heavy weight work, but why you don't need heavy, heavy weights, the, the physiological mechanisms for uh, behind each training method, for example. Also explain for uh, why CrossFit athletes 
uh, need hypertrophic type of training, uh, why powerlifters need hypertrophy type training, and uh, all these subjects are covered. Paul covered the nutrition, also covers his own view on, on the proper ways to stimulate muscle growth. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty good book, but mostly for pure hypertrophy. Yeah. If you were to ask me which is my best book, I would still answer theory and application of modern strength and power methods. That is my own personal favorite. If someone is a strength coach, that is the best book because it covers pretty much all the isometric, eccentric, concentric training methods, plyometric training methods, why they work, the science behind it, how to apply it to training, how to paradise. So... Even Mike Boyle, when he read it, he actually uh, sent me a copy of his own book. And when he signed it, he said, your book was the best book I ever read on training. Yeah, he loves that book. Yeah, 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 yeah he loves that. I, remember I was actually in, in the car with Mike one day, and I remember asking him that. I, like, I remember asking him, is there any training books that have only come out in the past two years you find any good? And he said, that was his, his answer. He said he devoured that book in a day. Like, <laughs> I wrote it in two weeks. That's <laughs> all so that's... Maybe. Yeah, that, that is. I have not written anything so far that, that is better than this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it is my true passion, like performance. I mean, even though I I do enjoy hypertrophy, uh, uh, and when I'm my, it's funny the way my brain works. When I'm doing something, I will write about that. I mean, uh, like right now, since I'm uh, doing mostly hypertrophy work. And I, I, I will write articles about hypertrophy. Yeah. Uh, when Paul and I wrote the book, I was actually preparing for my, my first photo shoot for my website. So I was in the same mindset as I am now. Yeah. And when I'm in that mindset, you wouldn't pay me enough to write about performance, even yeah. though that is what I like. But that's how my brain works. Uh, in uh, last, last winter, I was in a phase where uh, all I did was uh, snatches, cleans, Front squats, deadlifts, uh, prowler sprints. You would not pay me to do a biceps curl. I mean, I, I try like once to do a curl and it just killed my motivation. Uh, now I'm training mostly for bodybuilding. You couldn't pay me to do a power snatch. Yeah, so it's, fun, my, it, it's funny because that, that was going to be my next question was, uh, you know, when is the last time you've done any sort of concentrated Olympic lifts and training? Because I know, uh, I, I, I know that you, you, you like Last to... time was, uh, I would say, uh, do, 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 probably about six months ago. Yeah, and do, do you often find that's kind of your pattern where, like, you'll, you know, you'll go a year, half a year to maybe a year, maybe more towards uh, strength, power, performance, and then after yeah. a while you'll drift more back towards hypertrophy for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instinctively, I find that I have, like, three cycles a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I have like uh, like for, for four months I will focus more on bodybuilding and getting lean uh, for about four months. What actually what happens is when I get it's the way I I'm not naturally built for strength. I mean I have a small structure. I have narrow shoulder blades. Uh, it, it's funny because people look at my picture and say, "Oh, Tib is like super big." No, Tib is not big. Tib has round muscles, and when he's lean, he looks good. But with a shirt, he looks like a normal human being. I mean I'm. I'm not tall, I'm not, I'm not a big structure, I don't stand out. When I'm shirtless, I'm super lean, so it looks good. Uh, but I'm, So when I'm dieting down for a photo shoot, I can't lift heavy weight because I'll get injured, yeah. um, uh, especially now that I'm getting older. So what I always find that after my photo shoot, I look great, but I, I'm, I'm super weak. I mean, I'm really not strong. 
and that pisses me off. So as soon as my photo shoot is done, I just want to get stronger. So I will do a phase of just like for four months, deadlift, squats, bench, uh, push presses, like heavy weights in the like three to five rep range. Uh, that, that's mostly how I will train. And once I regain my strength, I, say, I will say, well, you know what? Let's see how, how high I can go in the Olympic lift and I'm strong again. So that's always how my brain works. Yeah, and then and then your body comp probably gets a bit off, and you're like, exactly. I gotta go back to some body comp and hypertrophy work. That's exactly that's exactly what happened. So after because when I train for strength, I'm still fairly big, but I, I, as I mentioned earlier, when I'm not preparing for a photo shoot or something, I don't eat fairly pretty well. So I will gain like 20 pounds, 25 pounds, still looking decent, uh, like lean-ish. Yeah, but not like I like. Uh, and when I but I, when I switch to Olympic weightlifting, mostly uh, I, I do atrophy a lot in the upper body. Yeah. My lower body stays good. My my I would say my traps and lower back stay good, but arms, shoulders, chest, they all get a lot smaller. Yeah, uh, yeah. because I'm not naturally I'm not naturally like a built to have like a big upper body. So that that goes away really fast when I don't train it. So, and when that happens, I, normally I will I will want to go back to more bodybuilding training. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that since I'm uh, still fairly good, like technically at uh, the Olympic lift, I can go like six months without doing them, and within two weeks I'm efficient again. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not a problem, and I and I stay mobile. I don't lose my mobility, so it's not a problem. Yeah. Just with, with your book of Paul Carter, I was just saying I, I hadn't had a chance to get it yet because when it came out, I was I was actually interning at Altus, and I actually didn't see yeah. that it had been out for a few weeks. And then when I came yeah. back to Ireland, I was like, "Fuck! I should have got it when I was in America." Yeah. They, they ship it on it's fucking crazy, so for whatever reason, but. Uh, I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely gonna purchase. And the other reason was I, I had so many books that I was reading at the time. I was like, oh, I can't, I can't add another book to the pile yet. But it's definitely on my, uh, my uh, wish list to get. That's, that's the reason why it, it took so long for me to come back on your podcast because I, I, I kept holding out because I didn't see your name on the on the buyers list. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Christian. Thanks. No problem. Um, I was gonna say one final thing there. Um. In terms of just any recent resources or things you're studying, is there is there anything that's exciting you at the moment? Oof. You know, I've been so much into that, uh, like neurological, psychological profile stuff, that it's really all I've been doing right at, at the moment. And I will be brutally honest. Um, I have not been able to read up and learn as much as I normally would yeah. because of my seminar schedule. Uh, when I'm in seminar mode, I mean, I, I don't want to learn new things. Uh, I want my brain to be free and just do seminars. Yeah. And when I do seminars, it's like for the, for like four months in a row, it was like three seminars a month yeah. or sometimes two, but with the traveling, it's pretty much the whole month. So it's really hard. Uh, and when I come back home, like for the two months here, now I'm preparing for a photo shoot, I don't have the brain power to absorb new material. So I will be brutally honest. I mean, I, I haven't been able uh, to read up as much as I wanted to yeah. uh, when it comes in, to, to in, new material. In terms of your, you just, uh, I, I like asking this question with people who travel a lot because I, I think it's very applicable to a lot of people who listen here. How, how do you structure your training when you're traveling so much? That's a great question. Do you have 45 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I have a few minutes. Well, I was really, really bad for, for the first... Well, you know, actually, Ireland, the first seminar in Ireland was when I actually 
started doing international seminars. Yeah. It, it kind of like over the last two years, it, it kicked up a notch. Uh, and at first, I was really bad. And I always lost about, let's say, with each trip, maybe lost three or four kilos and got actually fatter if that's possible. I always look, of course, because of the cortisol response, I didn't train as much. Uh, just being in a different setting for some reason, it didn't put me in a high performance mode. Uh, my, my food. So, so now what I do now is I always insist of, on having uh, a, an hotel that is at walking distance from a grocery store and that has uh, like a kitchenette in there that, yeah. that, and ideally a fridge. So, so that is the number one condition for me, like at least to keep eating decently. Yeah. Uh, now, as far as training is concerned, uh, what I find is that, of course, when I give seminars, I always have access to the gym where I'm going to give a seminar. So, so it's never really a problem to have access to decent facilities. So over the past year, pretty much every time I went away for seminars, I was able to maintain or even improve my performance. Uh, but what I find is that when I'm personally under like high stress situations, which which happen when, when I'm, I'm traveling, I'm naturally looking toward uh, safer, uh, lesser draining training methods. So it's yeah. really more bodybuilding kind of work. Yeah, that's that's, that's so kind that, of what I ear towards too. Like when I'm fatigued, I'll I'll notice that you know it's, it's obviously easier to train the upper body and the lower body, and then. It's easier yeah. to do more strength movements than, say, Olympic lifting movements. So usually I'll stray away maybe from the Olympic lifts. It, I suppose it's not so much like having access to, to, to food and training. It's kind of how, how you train around the fatigue and yeah. the travel and the motivation. So well, you, 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 I find that the, the, the more fatigued, the more stressed out, the more anxious I am, the more I go toward bodybuilding exercises, yeah, bodybuilding yeah. methods, uh, upper body work. And really the way I see it is I just don't want to lose anything, but mostly I'm actually using training just to feel good. Yes. yes. Because what the hardest thing for me, when I, because of my, my neurotype, I'm muscle dominant. And by me, when you are muscle dominant, you have an enhanced perceptions of your muscles and how your body feels. I mean, you've probably seen that I always adjust my shirt. Because I'm always conscious of how my shirt feels on my body. If my muscles get flat, I, I, it's magnified my brain. So, so the worst thing for me when I travel is the water shifts. Yeah. Water get out, gets out of the muscles and beneath the skin. So, so the muscles feel flatter and my, my, I, I look fatter and the, the clothes feel completely different. So I really need to pull that water in, back inside the muscle to feel good. So it's mostly for my own mental sanity. But normally, when I what I do when I'm when I'm away, uh, I will. Well, the cool thing is that most hotels have a, like a makeshift gym that is half decent. So I will always like have a very short session in the morning, like just pump work for about 20, 25 minutes, ju- just to start my day to feel good, and then I'm gonna have my real training session. About uh, four to six hours later at, at the gym, I'm going to give the seminar at uh, for about 45 minutes. I'd rather have like two short sessions because when I'm traveling, cortisol level is high. So you don't want a training session that will actually lead to a great cortisol response because that's just going to mess up how you feel and look when traveling. Great stuff. Christian, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day there. And, and uh, I definitely would love to get you back on because... I definitely want to cover more again of the, the rest of the strength methods and also we didn't even, even really get into the power of hypertrophy and with the hypertrophy methods I really wanted to, 
to, to really get your thoughts on that, particularly because you're kind of in the hypertrophy mind zone. But just yeah. finally, uh, I, I know you, you covered this in seminars. One final thing, just because you, you know you're 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 so well rounded in terms of strength power hypertrophy methods. Is there any really top resources you you would recommend to any listeners? I know one is like that that optimal. It doesn't it's the optimal training book, but it's in German yeah. or French. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there is there any uh, English or translated works that that like that that you find a lot of people aren't aware of, whether they're old classical well, books or when it comes, uh, uh, that's the question that always gets me because uh, uh, I have great memory for like learn things, but not for things I did. Yeah. So for, for books I read, it's always uh, uh, like I, I really have to make a list to be able to answer that question because I always get stuck, but. If we're talking about hypertrophy, the one book I read recently that really impressed me, it's an e-book, it's, it's not like a super fancy or anything, but the quality of material is really high when it comes to hypertrophy training, especially the science of why muscles grow uh, is uh, Fortitude Training by Dr. Scott Stevenson. Nice, uh, nice. Actually, when I read it, I, I emailed Scott and I say, "Fuck you, man! I wish I wrote that book." Yeah, uh, it's I really, really, really like his approach. Uh, I train personally in a fairly similar way, not exactly the same. I, I do believe in frequency. I train every muscle group three or four times a week, like he does. Uh, very low volume uh, and using method that allows me to go to failure and beyond. Uh, but the way he explains the science and why you're using these methods is is really, really interesting and really, really well explained. Great. One of the smartest uh, men in, in hypertrophy training, definitely. Great stuff. Christian, we'll call it there. Thanks so much for your time. Just stay online just for uh, an extra half second uh, while I, or half minute while I close up the show. So, guys, hour and a half with uh, Christian Thibodeau. Absolute pleasure. Absolute knowledge bombs dropped. I mean, all that information to do with the neurotransmitters and training, just absolutely fantastic. And then his insights into strength and his insights into how he trains when he's traveling, just absolutely mind-boggling. We'll definitely have Christian on again once his schedule uh, allows. But, guys, th- uh, thanks so much for listening. Make sure you check out Christian's uh, website, which I'll plug on in the show notes. And I'll also make sure to put any additional information mentioned throughout the show um, from Christian in the show notes as well. So, guys, thanks for listening. Keep uh, sharing the podcast. Keep sharing the love around. And I will uh, talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong.